few weeks ago, I was talking to a retiree who had been scheduled for knee replacement surgery. And a few months prior to this replacement surgery, he started taking collagen. Now, collagen is a protein that's found in our bodies uh, that strengthens and preserves connective tissue. And so you start taking it early, and some of these joint issues hopefully can be resolved. Well, this particular case was really remarkable. This, this brother started taking collagen. He went back to the doctor, and after a couple of months, the doctor actually said, you no longer need joint replacement surgery. It's like, wow, that's amazing. You, you could say, in a sense, if we're to pull on the language of the, the sermon series, he'd experienced renewal, renewal in his joints. And one of the things I want to do this morning is point your attention to Acts chapter 2 and see how in a somewhat similar way, God has designed renewal for your body, for your soul, through the body of Christ, through the life of the church. And I recognize that if your joints are aching, generally the first response you have is not, I need to go take collagen. And in a similar way, when your spiritual joints start to ache, and when life starts to get really busy, the first response often isn't, I need to get more involved in the life of the church. That's where I'll find renewal. Or that that's not always how things go, but I want you to know that God has designed the life of the church as a nutrient-rich meal for your soul. That's what God has designed life in the church to be. And although taking collagen might feel like a duty at times, you all actually know it is a gift for your flourishing. And sometimes church life can feel a bit like a duty, something Christians are supposed to do, but we need to recognize that God has designed it as a gift for our flourishing. And the title of the sermon being Renewal Through the Body, we've been trying to keep the consistency, renewal through uh, for each of the sermons in this series. But the creative title I had this week was Cigarettes and Ikea Furniture. A little bit more fun than the other one. And cigarettes, we know, have these pretty significant known health risks. In fact, they're so significant that the FDA requires on all the packaging that a pretty significant portion of the packaging be dedicated to saying, hey, this is risky business. And essentially, those big warnings say, hey, these things are deadly. It's basically what the, the packaging is supposed to say. And I want to, in a similar way, say, do you know what's spiritually deadly for us? What is spiritually deadly is seeking to live the Christian life apart from meaningful connection to a local church. I want to wave the warning flag there. And so we talk about meaningful membership here at Parkside because the principle is clearly taught in the New Testament. But if we're to look beyond the Bible, just to general common wisdom that anyone can have, we actually see very similar conclusions it was earlier this year that the U.S. Surgeon General did a study on preventable death in the U.S., and they found that loneliness and social disconnectedness can be as deadly as smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. Shocking. Here's how they say it. They said the mortality impact of being socially disconnected is similar to that caused by smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day and even greater than that associated with obesity and physical inactivity. Now, the Surgeon General doesn't come right out and say, here's what you guys need to do. You need to go join a church and make a meaningful commitment there. Okay, I get that. But what if? What if they're grasping at this larger truth that God has already revealed? And social disconnectedness is what they call it. They say this is similar danger to 15 cigarettes a day. 
greater health risk than obesity, greater health risk than physical inactivity. But if you take the general wisdom that they're putting forward and view it through the lens of Scripture, you see that a deep, meaningful commitment to a local church is absolutely critical. And sure, you can attend on a Sunday, regularly perhaps, without making a deep commitment to that body of believers. And, and being here on Sunday is certainly better than staying at home. Don't misunderstand me. But I do want to say that without making a meaningful commitment to a local church, you're spiritually at risk. So the alternate title was Cigarettes and Ikea Furniture. And in cigarettes, we see a negative picture of what happens when we don't have a meaningful commitment to a body of believers. But Ikea Furniture gives us more of the positive picture. Now, I'm no lover of Ikea Furniture, so if that's not your flavor, don't worry. I'm not trying to persuade you that you need to go up to Fisher's and take a seven-hour field trip to walk through the store. But Ikea is known for their assembly instructions that give a picture of what it's supposed to look like. That's one of the things they're famous for. And here in Acts chapter 2, what we find is a picture of what life in the local church should look like. It's a description of the earliest local churches and what they looked like. And it's sort of a model for us to say, yeah, it should look something like this. And certainly 2,000 years later, it looks a little different. But some of the core elements resound. And so I'm going to propose that we see seven pictures of the local church in Acts chapter 2. And what I want to encourage you to do, I want to encourage you to identify one or two of those looking into 2024 and say, that's where I need to focus. You try and do all seven, you're likely not going to be very successful. You're trying to, you know, your eyes are bigger than your belly, as we say around mealtime, right? You're, you're t- chewing off too much here but find one or two things, and I'm going to move pretty quickly through them because a seven-point sermon is tough to execute. I get that. Um, But think of one or two ways. Like, yep, that's an area where I think the Lord is moving me and perhaps our family towards renewal through the body of Christ. Seven pictures of renewal through the body. Here's the first one. Devotion to teaching. Devotion to teaching. If you've got Acts 2 open, hope you do. Take a look back. Here's what we read in verse 42 right from the get-go. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What they started out doing, we recognize that teaching sound doctrine is a fundamental necessity to have a healthy church. And in our culture today, teaching sound doctrine is not necessarily in vogue. It's not the most popular thing to do. You'll often hear people say, no, we don't want to draw lines of doctrine because that divides. No, we'd rather draw circles that are more inclusive But friends, can I tell you, if a local church is not committed to sound doctrinal instruction from the Word of God, it's not a healthy church, and its members will not be renewed in God's Word. Psalm 119, 105, we read, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul would write, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. I love that phrase in there, dwell in you richly. It's not Paul saying, hey, did you read your Bible this morning? Did you check the box here? How many days this week did you read? He's saying, is the word of Christ dwelling in you richly? What I mean to say is that Christian maturity is far more than reading your Bible each morning. But I've never, ever met a mature Christian who hasn't built the habit of reading their Bible on a regular basis so that the word of Christ would dwell in them richly. I had a conversation with a member here at Parkside just a couple of weeks ago 
And they, they basically said, hey, Pastor Justin, I heard something taught in one of the lessons here at Parkside, and it was a very old truth, something I'd known for quite a while. But the devotion to teaching here actually helped me to remember something I already knew. And it's helped me to see significant victory in my Christian walk and grow closer to the Lord simply by saying, I'm going to be here and be devoted to the teaching and listening and asking the Lord to speak to me. You might think of it this way. Devotion to teaching is much like devotion to eating, right? Most of the meals in your life you don't remember, but you sure don't want to skip them, right? Maybe there's a couple like legendary ones where you went to an amazing steakhouse or this one particular Christmas dinner was just phenomenal, but for the most part, you don't remember the fish tacos or the PB&J that you had two weeks ago. That's not how it works, but you recognize that if I deprive myself of that, I'm not going to continue growing. So maybe you're saying, boy, Justin, I recognize, like, maybe I'm not totally deficient in this area, but in 2024, I need to grow in devotion to teaching. Certainly being here for corporate worship on Sunday mornings is the starting point, but I might encourage you to sign up for our Bible Institute starting January 7th, where we walk through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John on Sunday nights, men and women Bible studies, say, I want to up the ante of spiritual instruction I'm receiving, where I open the Word of God, a simple action step uh, that you could take for the coming year to say, you know what, this is how I think my soul needs to be renewed in the Word of God. This brings us to the, the second point, the second picture of renewal through the body. We see devotion to fellowship. Looking back at verse 42, we read, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. The word fellowship means sharing or participation. In other words, true Christian fellowship is far more than two Christians eating a donut. Right? I like Christians and I like donuts, but that's not what the fellowship word here is, is referring to. It's something much deeper. Throughout the New Testament, we see the one another's of Scripture, where God says, here's how you interact with one another, how you love one another, serve one another, speak to one another, forgive one another, more than a hundred times. You see, true biblical fellowship involves sharing life together. It involves sharing the mountaintops, it involves sharing the valleys, and it involves sharing the plains where things are just kind of keeping on going, maybe a little mundane, but we're sharing life together. The dominant metaphor for the church in the New Testament, the main metaphor that's used is that of a family. We just continue sharing the ups, the downs, and the in-between together. My friend Drew Hunter, a pastor over at Zionsville Fellowship, says it this way. He says, biblical fellowship, friendship, it doubles our joys and halves our sorrows. I think it's a good way of thinking about the gift that God intends through the gift of fellowship. So you might ask, you're a little bit newer to the church, say, how do I find this deep fellowship, this shared life together in a church of 400 people? How does that work exactly? And I think it's good to recognize that you can have friendship with many, many, many people. You can have wide friendships, but deep, enduring fellowship is likely to be in a smaller group. Only a few. It's hard to share the all of life with 100 people. Right? There's a reason that Jesus was with the masses, had a group of 12, and then a group of three. Right? It's instructive for us here. That's one of the reasons we say it's so significant that as you join the church, you get committed to a Sunday school class or to a community group. You have a smaller group with which you can do life. And so if you haven't done that yet, that I think is one of the most significant things you can do in 2024. So I'm going to get connected to a community group or a Sunday school class and start doing life with these people. 
It's also through serving opportunities that we have deep connection with people, isn't it? Oftentimes, you just get together with a common mission, start working together, and lo and behold, as we start to sweat together a little bit, we're sharing life, and there's a bond that's formed, and that fellowship flows out of that. But it's important for us to see that this deep fellowship isn't merely for life in the church. It's actually significant for bringing in those who are what we call de-churched. Now, by de-churched, what I, I mean is not people who aren't Christians, but people who are believers And then at one point in time, got disconnected from a local church and said, well, I'm still following Jesus. I'm trying to, but I'd like to get reconnected. I don't know how. I read a a study this past year that said more than half of those who are de-churched, this is Christians not connected to a local church, more than half of them said, if I simply had someone to invite me back in with them, I'd love to go. I just lacked the shared life together, the fellowship And if a friend would be with me and open their home and their life into this church together, I'd love to be part of that. Here's how the conclusion of the book that I read stated it. The author said this, if there's one single application from our research that you walk away with, please let it be this. Invite your de-church friends back to a healthy church with you. But unlike a simple nudge to go back to the gym, we would do well to open the doors of our homes and chairs at our table. We aren't just telling them they should go back to church we're inviting them into our lives, which includes the church. See the holistic fellowship there. Fellowship is a bit, you might say, like spiritual hydration. Once you start feeling thirsty, you're already dehydrated. And so you want to get out in front of it and start drinking water through the day so you never get dehydrated. And investing in relationships that build you up in Christ, oh, it's absolutely critical. Okay, I could say that and recognize that extroverts and introverts are going to have different appetites for relationships. Right? I get that. And it's going to look different for different people. But fellowship isn't optional for any of us. It's critical to life in the body. The third picture then that we see is devotion to communion. Yes, devotion to teaching. Yes, devotion to fellowship. Third, devotion to communion. Looking back at verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread. Breaking of bread there, referring to communion. Maybe you've heard it called the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. We recognize this is not a saving grace, but it is a strengthening grace, where you're strengthened as believers. The bread, the juice, representing the body and the blood of Jesus. And we understand that this is reserved for Christians to receive strength from the Lord, where, as theologians would say, in communion, we actually see the gospel. Yes, we preach the gospel. Yes, we pray the gospel. Yes, we sing the truths of the gospel. Here we see it because you see a wafer. You see the juice that helps to picture in a very tangible way, a way you can actually taste that Christ's body was broken, his blood was poured out. And the spirit is here present in a special way. It doesn't literally become the body and blood of Christ, but it helps us to remember Christ's work, to celebrate his work, in a way to proclaim his work and actually to participate in it because you are breaking the bread and pouring out the juice in a physical way as each of our sins did cause his body to be broken and his blood to be poured out. We recognize that he was broken so we could be made whole and he was poured out so we could be filled up. It's so important. Obviously, the Bible doesn't say what the frequency ought to be here, 
It doesn't say how often we ought to practice communion. But in Acts chapter 2, it seems to be a central part of their gathered worship. And every other element there, it would seem odd if we had a service without teaching or without prayer. Right? And so we think it's good to continually come back to the gospel. I had someone ask me uh, maybe a year or so ago, said, I understand this communion thing, Justin. Why do you explain it every week? And I said, well, it's, it's not because I think we're trying to grow in information on a weekly basis. We're growing in formation on a weekly basis. That we're formed by the gospel, remember these truths, not necessarily trying to pile up more data in our heads, but have hearts that are shaped by the gospel. Recognizing that Christian growth isn't necessarily gaining more knowledge, but going deeper in the gospel. And so as you look ahead to 2024, I simply would remind you that your spiritual life will flourish in profound new ways. If you'll say this, say, for me to grow, I need to go deeper into the gospel more than I need new information. That's a bit of a paradigm shift for us. To understand, I need to go deeper into the gospel and delight in what Christ has done for me more than I need new information. There's a devotion to communion. This brings us to the fourth picture of renewal through the body, devotion to prayer. The final three words of verse 42, they simply say this, they were devoted to all those things and the prayers. Quick survey of the biblical material. We know that prayer is the antidote to anxiety, Philippians 4, 6. We know that praying for one another brings healing, James 5 and verse 16. We know that prayer is the key to avoiding sin, Matthew 26. We know that prayer is the key to avoiding the temptations in Satan, and it gives us protection from Satan, John 17. We know we're called to pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5, and we know that praying actually brings honor and glory to God. It pleases him. All of that tells us that prayer is an active step of confessing our neediness and our dependency to Christ. Maybe two parenting examples, think about it this way. You're not going to bring your burdens and your needs to your toddler. Pour out your heart to them and ask them to help because you don't depend on them in that way. And yet, if your teenager is never asking you for guidance or advice, you're going to recognize that as arrogance in your teenager, thinking that they know everything. And all of a sudden, when you turn 30, you realize your parents just got a lot smarter. Both of those illustrate the point. The young child, you go to those whom you need, and you're not needy of a three-year-old. And yet, as a teenager, you ought to be recognizing, my parents have wisdom. I need them in profound ways. And when we fail to do that, while we can mock teenagers a little bit for not asking for their parents' wisdom, they're simply embodying the same approach we bring to our Heavenly Father. That's why we often say that prayerlessness is pride acted out. Say, God, I don't need you. I've got this. If you're feeling a bit convicted now, let me encourage you, heading into 2024, to think about what we call worship-based prayer. All I mean by worship-based prayer is this. You start with the character of God and what he's done and then move into how you respond to him. It doesn't start with our requests. It doesn't start with the grocery list of God do this, 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 and this. But it doesn't avoid that either. It simply starts with who is God and how do I respond to him. Now, each month, the first Sunday of the month at 9 o'clock, we're going to continue having our prayer services where we do that exact thing. We have worship-based prayer, and I'd invite you to come, 
But as you're growing in that, one simple thing I found helpful is as I read my Bible in the morning, seek to find one Bible verse that I can turn into a prayer. You might read a chapter or two, or you're doing the right, read through the Bible thing in a year, and you got like five chapters. Whatever you do, find a verse. I can turn this verse into a prayer. It helps me start with who God is and then how I should respond. And there's renewal for your soul here. That's the fourth aspect of what we see. The fifth picture in this passage we see of renewal is through a devotion to generosity. Devotion to generosity. Verses 44 and 45, here's what we read. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, notice here, this is pretty wild generosity, isn't it? Don't don't gloss over what's going on. They've got immense generosity. They're seeing a need in the body and saying, you know what, I could sell a couple of sheep. I could sell a goat and help meet that need. How radical would that be? Just take what's happening there and transcribe it across a couple of thousand years. Say, hey, here's this need in the body. I don't have the need, I don't have the means to meet that need right now, but I could sell a vehicle. We could get by on one car as a family. I could help to do that. Like you put it in those terms, you're like, wow, like I sometimes skip over the magnitude of the generosity that we see in their lives here. Friends, it's so important we understand a normal part of our Christian discipleship is that we're growing in generosity to God's kingdom. That's a normal part of our Christian discipleship. One of my mentors would often say, if your wallet isn't converted, you have to ask if you're really converted. It's a kind of poignant way of getting at it, but 2 Corinthians chapter 9 Verses 6 and 7 state it in a, a helpful way. It says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. He's getting at this work of, I must recognize God's grace in my life, how he's been generous to me, and therefore I can be generous to others. It's not putting a specific number on it, not putting a specific percentage on it. He says, you should give out of your own heart as you've decided, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, but joyfully as an opportunity to worship the Lord of the universe who's given so much for me that now I can give back to him. And the goal is to be growing in this area, right? Not just say, I've hit my mark, I'm at my 10% tithe, and now I just put it on, you know, repeat, but I'm growing closer to Jesus just as we would want to be growing closer to him in every single aspect of our lives. I know it's difficult with inflation taking off like it is. You start to realize that expenses are just kind of ballooning, that we lose track of, am I actually growing in this area? Or do I kind of feel like I've checked the box in this area and then I'm just trying to keep my head above water and everything else? And sometimes... I think we can lull ourselves to sleep and forget about the idea that we should be growing here. John Piper has described it this way. He says this, a middle-class American who's only tithing 10% is probably robbing God. In other words, we've become so accustomed to our Western prosperity and its ways of life that we think 5 or 10% is generous. Now, Piper's never been one to mince words, But I do think he's right in this way, that money can be so seductive in our lives 
so seductive, we don't even realize that we're worshiping it. And so one of the ways that we fight back against the seduction of money is by seeking to grow in our generosity to God's kingdom. And so if you're a planner, you might get the spreadsheets out and you're like, hey, how can we grow by a quarter of a percent or a half a percent or one percent each year? And if you tend to be more spontaneous, you're just prayerfully saying, like, Lord, how can we be more generous? Help us to be more generous this year. And I understand there may be situations where jumping into a 10% tithe is what, uh, we don't, I don't think that's a biblical mandate. I do think it's a good place to start. But it may not be possible because of other decisions that have been made or other situations with your income right now. But what you can do is simply say this, I recognize that we need to grow in this area, and so I'm going to take four steps. First off, I'm going to pray that God would help me to see my own heart clearly. It's always the first step, because it starts with our heart. And then sit down to read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, two chapters to read. First, pray for your heart. Go to God's Word, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. If you're married, have a conversation with your spouse. And then the fourth step is simply this. We're going to commit to action. I'm not prescribing what that action needs to look like. But say, we're going to commit to taking a tangible step here. Pray, read God's word. If you're married, talk about it with your spouse. Commit to action. (laughs) And it's funny, you know, as I say this, I realize how counterintuitive it sounds. Like, Justin, did you just say that I would feel renewed in my soul if I had less money? (laughs) Like, I, I understand it sounds totally backwards, right? But that is what God says. And I can just tell you from dozens of friends I have who have gone before, many of which are in this room, that they've borne out the promises of God to be absolutely true in this respect. And if you're saying, Justin, I'd like to grow in this way, and I'm struggling to see what the next step is, I would love the chance to chat. Not that I'm going to give you all the answers, but I'd love to connect you with one of my friends who has a little more gray hair than me and let them tell you about the faithfulness of God through the years. That's the fifth picture of renewal that we see here. The sixth picture, renewal through the body that we see, is through a devotion to hospitality. Devotion to hospitality. We pick up in verse 46, and here's what we read. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. The sixth picture of life in the body is sharing homes and eating meals. One, of, one commentator said of the Gospel of Luke that in Luke, Jesus is always found eating or coming from eating or going to eating and actually got killed for who he ate with. <laughs> like, meals are central to his ministry here. And we recognize that sharing meals together sends a profound message in welcoming people, which is exactly what we're called to do. Romans 15, 7 says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Friends, when you show a warm welcome to someone else, when you radically show a warm welcome, as Christ has welcomed you, God is glorified by that, and you'll be renewed by it. Look, this doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be expensive. You don't even have to have a a home with tons of space. But I found that Arby's has really good shakes for about two bucks. It's amazing at Marco's the amount of pizza you can get for $25. Like, you don't have to go all out on this kind of thing. I was talking to a brother the other day who said, you know, our home is not real big, but I've got another friend who likes band competitions, and so I had him over, and we streamed a marching band competition together. We were able to show hospitality and warmly welcome someone in that way. 
See, there's all kinds of ways that this can take place. But you need to recognize that God is glorified when you welcome others. And that changes how you think about hospitality. Again, if you're married, it might be you're married to a planner. And so that means, hey, we need to start thinking about carving out the first Sunday of the month is going to be a hospitality lunch. And we're going to try and have a way to get together with somebody. And that schedule is blocked. And we get to have fun in saying, who's it going to be? And maybe you're more of a spontaneous kind of person, or you're married to a spontaneous person. That kind of freaks you out. And I just want to encourage you, like, be okay with a little bit of crazy and let them have the joy of being spontaneous. It's not going to look how you expect it to, but there's joy there and renewal to be had. I'll tell you, there was a man uh, that's significant in my life. He's now with the Lord. His name was Jim Huckabee. He's in Pennsylvania while I lived out there, and Jim embodied hospitality. And by that, I mean he warmly welcomed people. And it overflowed into his home, but it wasn't something merely in his home. It was a way of life. And I'll never forget, when you walked into the Huckabee home, they had a little mat, it said Proverbs eleven twenty five, and it said, he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. And somehow I never knew about that Bible verse. I'm sure it had been taught to me, I just had glossed over it. But I saw that in his life as he warmly welcomed others into his life and into his home. Here was a man who was refreshed, and I wanted to be like Jim Huckabee. He warmly welcomed others as Christ had welcomed him and God was glorified. Perhaps in 2024, you say, you know what? This devotion to hospitality is something I want to grow in because there's renewal for my soul and the body of Christ. This brings to our seventh, our final picture of what renewal through the body looks like. We see a devotion to praising God. Devotion to praising God. Look at verse 47 with me. Here's what we read. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, in all of it, they were actively praising God. We recognize that praising God is the glue that held these previous six pictures together. And without praising God, each of the previous six pictures could miss the point. So if we just leave that slide up there for a second... Without praising God, teaching can lead to knowledge that puffs up without love that builds up. Without praising God, fellowship could merely become a social club. Without praising God, communion could merely become a duty. Without praising God, prayer could be performative. Where I feel good about myself because I'm praying in big words and long prayers. Without praising God, generosity can lead to religious pride. The Pharisees gave tons of money, and God was not pleased with them. Without praising God, hospitality can just become, we're the party house. And we're not actually warmly welcoming others as Christ has welcomed us as a way of glorifying God. See, this is the glue that holds all of them together. And Satan has this subtle strategy of trying to get you to live your life without actively recognizing God at work, without actively praising God, such that you can go through the motions without connecting yourself to the source. And that's how he wants you to do life in the church. You see, it's so easy for us to recognize when our plans work, when our medicines work, when our investment strategy works, when our parenting strategy works, when our study habits work. Yes, I did that right. And I give credit to it. But in all of it, is it an active part of your life to give praise to the God of the universe who is behind the scenes making all of it work? I think a lot of us profess Christian faith, 
But if you look at your conversation through the week, it doesn't really sound too Christian. I don't mean by that that there's crude jokes and bad words being stated. What I'm saying is, as you talk about your life, it seems like you are the main character and God is maybe tagging along. Maybe you tell a community group leader or member, a Sunday school class member, yes, God did this in my life. But when you talk to your neighbor who isn't a Christian and doesn't go to church, do you say the same thing of, boy, it was just so cool to see God at work in our family this week? Like, maybe you're afraid that'll make them feel a little awkward. Like, they're not Christians, they don't understand. Well, help them to understand. And you look at the end of verse 47, it's so interesting to see the three things that are placed together. There's praising God, having favor with all, and God saving sinners. All three of those go together. And I wonder if our conversation in daily life, particularly with unbelievers, reflected the reality of God is the one at work, and I'm giving praise to him, if we wouldn't see more conversions and more opportunities for baptism. People seeing the grace of God at your work and you showing a better way of life. If you want to implement this idea of more regularly praising God throughout the life of your family and of yourself, there's a lot of ways you could do it. One of the things we've tried at the cookhouse is to just have dinner prompts and say, what's one thing you can be thankful for from your day today? What's one way you can praise the Lord for what he's done today? My sister did something. She started a blessings jar. We say, hey, we praise God for this. And you write something down each day, put it in there. And then at the end of the week or end of the month, you get it out and read it. And it just helps it to be more tangibly on your radar. God is at work in a thousand ways. And sometimes I see one or two or three of them. See, these things aren't difficult to do, but they do take intentionality to do them. So that we'll be renewed in the act of praising God. And when you begin to see God at work in ways you didn't see before, what ends up happening is you're liberated from the stress and the pressure of always having to be perfect and recognize even in my weakness, God is the one at work. Just like we sang, oh, come all ye unfaithful, Christ is born for you. It's a beautiful thing to see. Friends, there's so much to see in renewal through the body. I started talking about collagen that would restore our joints. You know, you go to a good doctor, they know exactly what's wrong with you, exactly the medicine you ought to take. You're pretty excited about it. In fact, usually run to do what they say the next time. Well, last time this worked great because you were able to diagnose this and I'm feeling so much better now. And sometimes they're going to diagnose things you're not sure about. Should I really do that? But you trust them and you honor them by doing what they've said. The same is true of Jesus, the great physician. He's seen you. He knows you at your best and at your worst and everything in the middle. And he's prescribed the medicine for the renewal of your soul. So this morning, yes, put his words into practice. Do what he has said, but recognize in it that your obedience to him in, in teaching and fellowship and prayer and communion and generosity and hospitality and praising him, all of that recognize this is an act of worship. It's not just me going through this motion and doing this thing because I'm recognizing the great physician is wiser than me, greater than me, and more majestic than I'll ever be. And by following his commands, I honor him. His commands, like we say, are for our, our, our good and his glory. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the, the good gift of your word that shows us what renewal in the body of Christ can and should look like. That you as the great physician have known us. You know our needs better than we do. You know the best medicines better than we do because you designed them yourself. So Lord, we ask in the, the busyness of December and Christmas that you would transform our lives. We ask that our achy joints would be made whole. We ask that you would fill us with your spirit, make us more like you. And as we look ahead to 2024, we ask that you would help us to identify areas in our life that can grow practices we ought to embody to become more like you and to find the renewal that you have designed for us. And we ask as a whole church body, Lord, that you would knit us together by your spirit, strengthen us, that we would be growing closer to you and also closer to each other. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.